0: Good morning. morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Romans. Today we're going to be in Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good, for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. So today we'll be in Romans 8.28. Will you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father God, uh, we live in an unsettled world. Not news to you, but news to us. Father, we are still suffering as a world, the horrors of Russia invading Ukraine. We have seen the utter evil of Hamas, Murdering non combatants, murdering and slaughtering families and children. We have the concerns of China invading Taiwan, Iran being attacked, Hezbollah up by Mount Hermon, and we certainly could go on. And Father, we ask that you would work justice, that you would bring those who would perpetrate evil to justice temporarily and eternally. We ask, Father, that so many who desperately need Jesus would hear the gospel. We pray that those who would perpetrate evil would be stopped We pray for those who have to go into the tunnels to clear out evil, that you would have your hand of protection upon them. We pray for those in the Gaza who have nothing to do with Hamas that you might allow them a safe passage and protection. We ask, Father, that even if I pray amiss, you would correct my prayers that justice would be served, that righteousness would go forth, that the gospel would penetrate places that it has not been. Father, do what only you can do. And Father, as we look at your inspired and errant word, do in our hearts what only you can do. Take a familiar passage and either remind us of its truth or perhaps even give us clarity where we did not have it. May we rightly divide your word for our betterment and your great glory. And to the name of Christ we pray, amen. Well, today's sermon is a continuation of our series. We're looking at passages that are often miscited, misquoted, misapplied, misunderstood. I would say Romans 8:28 is very high on that list. It's so familiar, it's so quotable. I would guess many of us could cite it, and we know. And we know that all things work together for good. For those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. And this passage is often cited during times of challenge and difficulty. It's written in cards. When people have gone through a, a tribulation, a tempest, a trial, at times of chaos. I thought I would illustrate chaos visually this morning. They're going to put it up here on the screen for you. I am so impressed with myself. I did it in Spanish as well. Wow. The quick readers are through it. Few of you are still on the first line. It's amazing that our brain can do that, isn't it? It's amazing as messed up as that is, that most of us could make our way through it. Let me tell you, by the way, that is an act of love. Do you know how long with autocorrect it took me to put that in my computer? (laughs) That was 45 minutes. I hated autocorrect as I worked on it. But this is what our God does. In the midst of trial and chaos, he can bring continuity and clarity and he can help us through it. One of my concerns with this verse, all things work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. One of my concerns is, that sometimes we cite it without understanding the context. And rather than being good comforters, we prove to be poor. I think of Elphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu, the three friends plus one. They came to Job, you remember that, right? Job is suffering immeasurably, and they come to Job, and they want to bring comfort in Job's life. But they don't. They start so well. They start with silence, and that is comforting. But by the end, they begin in an accusatory fashion, saying, Job, you are suffering because of what you have done. We know that's not true. Job suffers in order to teach Satan a lesson, in order to teach Christianity and Judaism a lesson for millennia. That's why Job suffers. And they end up getting a divine rebuke in Job 42 because they have gone from helping this sufferer to hurting this sufferer. And I think we can do that with Romans 8:28, If we somehow, in the midst of somebody suffering, we say, hey, don't worry about it, man. All things work together for good. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And someone is afflicted with cancer and we say that. And I wanna tell you that doesn't help. Or a young couple suffers a miscarriage and we said, God's got this, Romans 8, 28, and it doesn't help. And without meaning to, we essentially say that what somebody is suffering is because of their own sin or because of God having a series of events in their life, And if they will just endure those events enough, God will knock their socks off with a blessing because all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. There's something good at the end of the rainbow. And then when that good doesn't happen, we shipwreck somebody's faith. What is the text about? Context. If there's one lesson we want to learn from this series. It's this. Don't go to a concordance, pull out a verse, write it on a card, or cite it to somebody without knowing the context. Because you may very well injure somebody's faith. And you may very well miscite and misapply scripture. And this verse is Exhibit A. All things work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to its purpose. What is the context? Well, in verses 29 and 30, the context is those who are foreknown by God, predestined, will be called and will be glorified. If you are here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I want to tell you that Romans 8.28 does not apply to your life. It doesn't. This is only for believers. And if you're here today and you don't believe, today is a day to recognize that you, I, we are sinners in need of a savior. And Jesus paid the penalty of our sin, which was death. He went to the cross. He died for us. He conquered death, rose again on the third day. And he is imploring you through me, 2 Corinthians 5, 20. We are there for Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Today, believe. He's imploring you. Believe that you're a sinner in need of a savior. Believe in Jesus Christ. The context is only for those who have been foreknown, predestined, will be called, will be glorified. It's only for a believer. That's verses 29 and 30. Verses 31 to 34, it's only for a believer that Jesus will throw his arm around in the face of the accuser, Satan, and said, this is my woman, this is my man. Don't you accuse. I died for this child. The context is one that in the midst of neither death nor life nor things present nor things to come nor principalities or powers or forces of this dark world, nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So the context is for believers who are presently walking with the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, Romans eight twenty eight has nothing for you until you know Jesus. And if you're here today and you're not presently walking with the Lord, but you know Jesus, but you're not walking with him, Romans 8:28 has got nothing for you. It's for those who are called according to His purpose, who are walking with the Lord. Only those who know Jesus, who are walking with Jesus, have any application in Romans 8:28. So make sure, my friends, make sure that you, I, we are a part of the application by believing in Jesus, turning from our sin. And pursuing Christ. Otherwise, Romans 8 28 has no application for us. What's the good? What is he promising? Well, I wish I had time to really make the case today. I don't. That would be two or three sermons, and I'm not going to take that time at this time to do it. But I'm going to give you the conclusion. I know what the good is. You probably do as well. There's three of them. These are the good that are being promised. God will be glorified. If you know Jesus, you're walking according to the purpose, you're in the darkness, you're in the chaos, God promises he will be glorified. The second good is he's carrying you through it. Neither death nor life, nor things present, nor things to come, nor principalities or powers or forces of this dark world, none of them will separate you, me, from the love of Christ Jesus. He's gonna be there in the midst of the darkness. That's the good. What's the third good? Maturation. He is going to mature us in the midst of the trial. Three goods. His glory. Our assurance in the midst of the trial. Our maturation as we walk through the trial. That is what is being promised for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now sometimes we cite this in if we're not careful, we end up blaming God for what we're guilty of. Again, we say, hey, I know you're going through a trial, but all things work together for good. For those who love God according to, or a called according to his purpose, say, hey, so if you just give God another four or five steps, you're going to see the good. It's coming. It's going to be great. It's going to bless your socks off. It's going to be joyful. It's going to be happiness. It's, it's going to come and we blame God for the tragedy. What does the Bible do with the tragedy? Who does it blame? Us. It goes back to Genesis three, the fall, when God put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, that you may eat of all the trees, but do not eat of the fruit of the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat of it, you will surely die and Satan said, oh, did God say you cannot touch? God didn't say that. He said, don't eat. God knows that if you eat of the fruit, you will be just like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. And they saw that the fruit was good and they ate of the fruit and they fell. And we have had a toothache ever since. But we don't have the right to blame Adam and Eve because Paul messes it up in Romans 5, 12. He says that we were seminally in Adam. We were in the garden. And he's saying to every one of us in this room that if we had been in there, we would have done the same thing as Adam and Eve. You probably a few days later, me a few days earlier, we all would have messed up. Every last one of us. So in the midst of chaos, in the midst of trial and tempest and tribulation, we don't want to say, hey, God is in this for you, to bring you good. Instead, look to ourselves. We're the reason that there's disease. We're the reason that there's chaos. We're the reason that there's tragedy. These are the implications of the fall. In fact, it's in the text. Let me read from Romans 8. This is our text, right? 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves. So just in case we are tempted to say, hey, whatever's happening, it's part of God's plan for you. And, and you know, just give it a couple steps and it's going to work out for good. It's going to be terrific. The passage already warns us, hey, some of what's happening is, is actually not God's plan. Some of what's happening is the repercussions of sinners like you and like me. Can God work good out of that? Oh, yes, he certainly can. Sometimes God takes the backside of a tapestry, which is a mess, and he makes something beautiful on the front. Our God is that kind of God. But let's remember what the promise is. It's for believers It's for believers who are walking with the Lord and the good is his glory. Our assurance in the midst of trial and our maturation, growing mature in Christ. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Now, if you were to borrow some of my books on Romans, I don't know how many commentaries I have in Romans, maybe 40. I don't know. I have a lot. And you would read the Reformed and the Arminian. I have a little bit of both. Well, I have a lot of one and very little of the other. But I have both sides. You would see that they often look at this verse from very different points of view. But I don't think they need to. I think actually they're looking at it like a prism from different sides, but both of them have truth. Those who are in the Reformed camp, that would be me. high understanding of God's sovereignty, we would say very clearly, hey, God hates evil. God never creates evil. God disdains evil. He doesn't want evil to impact the world, but he has allowed it. But God can use evil. He is so sovereign that though he never wills it, he never creates it, he utterly hates it, he can use it for his divine purposes. That's what the Reformed side would say. The Arminian side would also give truth. It would say that God has given us the level of freedom. Arminians tend to stress the freedom of humanity. Reformed tend to stress the Sovereignty of God over humanity. But there is truth in both camps, right? And we do have a level of free will. And that level of free will constantly messes up. And both sides would say this. When we mess up, it never surprises God. Never. Think with me. You think of Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. God creates Lucifer, the son of the morning star. Do you think God was surprised when his highest created being wanted to be just like God? No. God knew that from eternity past, long before he created Lucifer. He knew that Lucifer would rebel. When he created Adam and Eve, do you think he said, oh man, how stupid. Why did I put that tree in there? If I had only thought through this, of course, they're going to eat that true. Man, I wish I had thought through this a little better. No, God knew from eternity past. And yet out of love for us, I mean, the perfect one loves us. Out of love for us, he still created us knowing that we would rebel. He's not in his throne rubbing his hands together because he kind of messed up with us. He knew we would mess up. And from eternity past, he knew how he would redeem us through the shed blood of his son. Do you think God was surprised when David and Bathsheba committed adultery and David murder? I don't think so. Not for a moment. He knew from eternity past exactly what they would do. He wasn't surprised by the Holocaust. That 6 million would be brutally, unconscionably murdered. He wasn't surprised by 9-11, where 3,000 plus Americans would die. He was not surprised. Oh, CNN was. CBS, NBC, Fox, the Jerusalem Post, they were all shocked. God knew Hamas would do what Hamas did. It didn't surprise God. And this is the confidence we have in this kind of God. He is not surprised. And we are. Sometimes we're terrified in this world as though God is not in control. He is utterly in control. He's in control and he's got the beginning worked out from the end. Don't live in fear. He is not surprised. I don't think God is surprised by anything. But he can work good in the midst of evil if you love him and you're called according to his purpose. And that good is not necessarily what I want. It's not a new Jeep. It's not a trip to Alaska, man. It's not another wife. I got a great one, don't need another. It's not a child, though if he's handing out grandchildren, I'll take a couple of those. It's not a new house or a car. The good is his glory. The good is knowing that Nothing will happen on this earth if you know Jesus, where he doesn't hold on to you firmly and your security firmly, and you have a future and a hope eternally with him in heaven. And the good is the maturation that he will work in our lives. All things work together for good, for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Now in the last week or so, if you've Tuned into the news, I don't watch it. I read it, but I read the phrase all the time that we are all God's children. You know that's not true. That's not true. It's nice sentiment. It's politically correct. It's biblical babble. It's not true. Jesus created every human. You can read that in Colossians one fifteen to twenty. God loves the world, John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. But if you want to be God's child, this is how you have to do it. John 1:12. yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to be a child of God. This passage is only for children of God. And how are you a child of God? Believe, receive. To them, he gives the right to be children of God. And then this passage isn't even for all children of God, but those who are pursuing, not perfection. That would leave all of us out, but pursuing the Lord. Then this passage has application in our lives. I remember an event that took place in my life. By the way, let me make a parenthetical remark. A few weeks ago, somebody was in my office and uh, they said, hey, You know, you used an illustration of somebody in the church. I said, No, I didn't. They said, Yeah, you did. I said, No, they said, I didn't do that. If I use an illustration of one of you, I've gotten personal permission. So when I'm using illustrations, I can tell you it has nothing to do with somebody at Highland unless they have given me permission. That actually is something I'm bound by. And I take it very seriously. So if you hear a story and you say, that's about me, it isn't. And maybe the Holy Spirit is pressing on you. (laughs) And I didn't know it was about you, but it isn't about you. So these two teenagers that I'm mentioning, they are not from Wisconsin. I pastored two other churches. They're from another church. So two teens came into my office, not of their own free will. They were sent there by their two moms and dads, you know, one of those straighten out my kid visits. Well, these two teens had engaged in intimacy and they were pregnant. And they came prepared. Kind of reminds me of the young boy who came into my office. This, This just popped in my head, I shouldn't do this. A boy came into my office to ask me to date one of my daughters, and he had Harris's book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Why do you bring that book into my office? I said, read the book, boy. Don't talk to me. Well, anyway, these guys came prepared. This this young gal and boy came in my office. They came prepared, and they cited Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And in as shepherding and pastoral way as I could, I said, you know, that really doesn't apply today. There are some things that apply. First Corinthians six, eighteen to twenty applies. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin a man commits is outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? You were bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. That applies. First John 1 John 1.9 applies. If you confess your sin, you are faithful and just, or he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That applies. But Romans 8.28 doesn't apply. And these were Christians. These were Christ-believing teens. They really had a saving relationship with the Lord, but in this area of their life, they were sinning. And it didn't apply because it's not only those who know Christ is those who are called according to his purpose, those who are living. Romans 8:28 did not apply. And so we talked about their need to repent, confess, agree with God, and turn from their sin. And I said, you know, it's a bit naive to think that everything's going to turn out good. I, I pray it does. But this is how it's really going to work. One of a few things is going to happen. You're going to ask me to marry you, and I'm going to tell you no, which I did. In their case, they were too young and too immature, and I was not going to allow them to compound their errors. Some couples certainly should get married in that situation. This couple should not. So I told them no. It may be that you're going to put this child up for adoption, that's my recommendation because you're not capable of raising this child. Or, one of you is going to attempt to raise this child, and you need to know that single parenting is a lot of work. Now some of you are single parents and some of you do an amazing job. Some of you have been single parents not because of any circumstances you created, or maybe you did, and you've done an amazing job, well done. But all things being evil, even, two parents, are going to have a more stable home than one. That's not politically correct. It just happens to be fact. It's true. And so I said, one of these things is going to happen. I don't know which one. But to claim that God is going to do good is naive. We're going to pray for that. He may be that gracious. But you might have a hard road ahead of you. Because the of consequences of sin occurs even when we confess and repent. Sometimes we have to pay some of the penalty of our sin. And so I shared that with them. I don't know if I shared 2 Samuel 12 to 18 with them, but I'm going to share it with you. You know the account very well. It's David and Bathsheba. I don't even know if Bathsheba is a willing participant, but David commits adultery with Bathsheba, she conceives, David hides his track by murdering her husband, Uriah the Hittite, who happens to be part of his secret service, he's been protecting David even before David was king, he's invested his life in David and David steals his wife and you remember David thinks he gets away with it and she gives birth to a child and God sends the prophet Nathan to David. And Nathan gives a parable, and David doesn't guess where it's going. And the parable goes something like this. There's a very rich man who has lots of animals that he has raised to eat. That is, they're not pets. These animals are future food. And he's visited by somebody, and he doesn't want to sacrifice one of his animals. So there's a poor person in town who has one animal. And the animal has a name and a collar and sits and sleeps on the bed with the master, this animal isn't raised to be eaten. And yet the rich man steals the poor man's pet and puts him on a spit and with a rotisserie cooks it over the fire and then serves up Benji or Lassie. Okay, it's a sheep, Baba. That's really the parable, right? And then David says, or Nathan says to David, you're the man. You know what Nathan does not say? He doesn't say all things work together for good. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Because although David was God's child, at that moment he was not walking according to his purpose. So even if this had been written at that point, it hadn't, it wouldn't have applied. This is what Nathan said. There is going to be hardship in your family from this day forth and he suffered marital conflict. From chapter 13 to 18 of Second Samuel, you have in chapter 13, one of his sons, Amnon, raping his half-sister, Tamar. You have another son, Absalom, getting Amnon drunk and then murdering Amnon in retaliation. You have Absalom, chapters 15 to 18, hating his father and usurping the throne and David has to run for his life and then Absalom is put to death. It wasn't good. All things don't work together for good just if you know Jesus. You gotta be walking with Jesus. So how do we apply the text? A few things. The first one comes from my Arminian friends, and they say it so well. Know the difference between what God permits and what God prefers. Sometimes we abuse this text by citing it when God permitted something that's sinful. And then we somehow think he's going to work good. No, no, no. God, when he prefers something, will work good. Know the difference between what God permits and what he prefers. This text only applies to what God prefers. His will in our life. As we are pursuing his will in our life, then God promises good. And remember what good is. That's number two. Good is God's glory. Good is our assurance he's gonna carry us through and he got a future and a hope that he will never let us go. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6, that's the good. And he'll bring maturity in your, my, our lives. When we go through the fires, but we know God, And we're walking with God. God's going to be glorified. God's going to give us the assurance that he's walking with us. And God's going to bring maturation into our lives. Third, can this verse occasionally be going a little beyond those goods? Could it have a little health, wealth, and prosperity thrown in as well? That's not the purpose of the passage, but yeah, it happens, right? We see that. We saw it in the life of Ruth, right? Ruth's husband, Macalone, died. God gave her Boaz. And they had Obed, who had Jesse, who had David, who according to Matthew 1, 1 to 16 is the lineage of Jesus Christ. So God did something even beyond those three. We see it in the life of Joseph, right? In Genesis, I mean, think about poor Joseph. His brothers flipped him, right? Sold him for a profit. He sold into Potiphar's house. Then his wife, much younger, is attracted to him and makes a number of runs at him. And he says, no. And he ends up being accused of what he won't do. And he ends up in the gulag. And then he gives interpretations and eventually he becomes the viceroy, number two in Egypt. And you remember what he says in Genesis 50 verse 20, what you meant for evil, God intended for good, for the salvation of the many, including you, to his brothers. Okay, that went way beyond God's glory, it was that. God's carrying him through, it was that. His maturation, it was that, and he became viceroy. And his whole family moves to the land of Goshen and enjoys Goshen for 200 years until Exodus 1.8, when a Pharaoh who does not know Joseph arises. That's a lot of good. A couple hundred years of good. So can it happen? Absolutely. But that's not what's promised in Romans 8.28. So what is the promise? In the words of Hebrews 13.5, God will never leave you, never forsake you. In the words of Romans 8.28, if you know Jesus, you're walking with Jesus, God's going to be glorified. Jesus is never going to let you go. You got a future. You got a hope. You got an eternity. And here on earth, he's going to bring maturity into your, my, our lives. That's the promise. So again... If we can't remember anything about this series, and I don't even remember what I preached last week, so I'm not putting any shame on you, but I just don't remember that stuff. The one thing I want to walk away with is don't lift verses out of context. Don't just go to a concordance and pull something up. Read the context. Understand the passage. Teach it. Preach it. Share it as God intended, and then we will rightly divide the word of truth. Let's pray. Father God, uh, thank you for another text. We We have quite a few more ahead of us, all the way to March. But Lord, as we look at these texts, we want to divide the word accurately. We want to know the context. And we want to be impacted, not glibly by a verse we look up in a a concordance and we don't even know what it means, but we want to rightly divide your word, your truth, for our betterment and your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.